to sacrifice for someone else. When we think about Memorial Day, it is a holiday for many people. It's a celebration of summer for many. But for some of us, it is a, it's a difficult time. It's a somber time. As we remember those who gave their life for our country, men and women who have put their life on the line and then paid the ultimate sacrifice. I know several um, men personally who lost their lives, who have sons who will never know their dad and sons who will never know their mothers. And we want to honor that. And so we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer for the family and for a country that has men that are brave enough and women that are brave enough to risk it all. Because that's a precious thing. There's not a lot of men and women that will stand up and do that and put their life on the line. And our culture today is pushing that away more and more. It's about us and not about others in our society. So let's go ahead and lift these people who lost family members um, to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, as we think about this Memorial Day, we immediately, our minds should go to the ultimate sacrifice paid by Christ on the cross. As we know that there are many who are mourning today, who go to the um, tombstones and they look and they see their loved ones and they see their friends and the ones that they joked and laughed with, people that they were close to. Father, we pray that you would um, encourage and strengthen the families who have lost so much for this country. Lord, as we see the state of our country today, I pray that you would strengthen boldness in us, that we would be a people of truth, that seek justice, and that we would be people that would pursue Christ above all. Father, as we think of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross, help us not push that aside and take it for granted. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us and allowing us to have a service where we worship you, where we are not hindered by bad people who seek to disrupt the worship of God. Lord, we thank you for this sermon. The text that you have provided for us today is rich. And Father, I pray that as we study your word, that our minds and our hearts would be enlightened and just filled with understanding but not just understanding, but understanding that leads to doing, and that we would be doers of the word, not just hearers. Be with me. Help me to hide behind your cross as your name is proclaimed. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. So turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have pew Bibles or chair Bibles, I guess would be a better term. And those chair Bibles can be found in the seat in front of you. Uh, and they're also, if you go to page 1059, that is the text that we'll be in. So 1059 is Philippians chapter 4. Night was falling over the harbor of Bristol, England, and in the orphanage founded by a man named George Mueller and his wife. The children were getting ready for bed. George was working in the study when his wife arrived with an alarming 
with alarming news. We're out of milk, she said. There isn't enough for the oatmeal in the morning. George laid aside his pen, and this wasn't the first time that money was needed to buy food and other supplies because money was tight. The Mueller's took their first group of 30 girls in 1836. If you think about that, that's the time of the Industrial Revolution. And there was a lot of orphans, and David Copperfield and all those uh, historic literary genres written about orphans was at that time. They now housed over a hundred kids. From the first, George remained resolved never to ask for funds from anybody, from any people, or to borrow any money. He didn't take out any loans. He went to God alone for every need trusting wholly in the Lord's faithfulness and provision. So this pastor, George Mueller, he rose from his desk, reached for his wife's hand, and he said, Mary, let us pray. Two orphanage employees joined them, and together they made their humble yet necessary request to God. Tiny, helpless mouths were depending on them for sustenance. Be assured if you walk with him and look to him and expect help from him, George reminded them afterwards, he will never fail you. Someone knocked on the door. Mary hurried to answer. Returning to the study a moment later, she handed her husband an envelope. It's a letter, George. Hurry up and open it. Enclosed was a sum of money, more than enough for the milk. Within minutes, two more letters arrived with money and pledges of support. This immediate and abundant response had become a typical experience for Mueller. In fact, Mueller is, is known for housing over, um, I think it's close to a million children in his lifetime. And he did that without asking anybody for money and taking out any loans. God provided for him. He would walk down the street praying and people would stop him on the street and say, hey, this is for the orphans. Just over, just over and over again. So George Mueller was a man who thrived in the generosity of other people. But he was also very content. Last week, we talked a lot about worry and anxiety. And then we saw, before that, the humility of the Christian. We saw what it means to know Christ. We, we looked at examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And when we first started, we learned a lot about what a slave of Christ is. Someone who is swallowed up in the will of another. I think that's an important distinction for the Christian. I want you to think of a Christian as someone who is swallowed up in the will of another. And now I know that many of us Christians fail over and over again when it comes to that, don't we? We fail to be swallowed up in the will of another. Another way that you can think about this is that a Christian melts his will into the will of God. He melts his own will into the will of God. And so we have a letter that is finished today. We're finishing up Philippians. And Paul closes his letter with three traits, three Christian traits. Contentment, generosity, and goodbye. The Christian life is dependent on the will of God. Just like Mueller, he is dependent fully on God. And that dependence leads to independence. That dependence leads to contentment. So Christian contentment is seen in this passage. Let's look at verse 10 of chapter 4. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly 
because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts to my need, or for my need, several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is, is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches, and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit, or be with your spirit. So Paul is content what makes someone like Paul content? So we know a lot about Paul, don't we? We know that he was a prisoner. We know that he was thrown in jail. And that jail was not like American jail where you can go and you can get your correspondence courses done or you can um, learn how to do uh, paper mache and all that fun stuff. But prison, they threw you in a hole. And if you had some friends, maybe somebody would bring you some food. But you don't get fed. You don't get provided for. In fact, you have to use your own money to eat, kind of like the Mexican jail in many ways. And so you're in jail, and he says, I'm content. I am content. Now, some of us are, have a hard time being content when the air conditioning's not hot enough or cold enough. Some of us have a hard time when our pools are too cold. Sometimes we, we get a little discontented when our chairs are uncomfortable in our sanctuaries, or the music is off tune, or something bothers us. But what does Paul say? I have found the secret of contentment in all circumstances. So if you look at verse 10, he starts by saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you renewed your care for me. So this is a thank you. He is saying, thanks guys for sending that money. Now, it's possible that they were worried that they didn't supply him enough. Maybe they were worried they didn't give him enough money. Maybe they were worried that they were too slow. Because it says here, in fact, you were concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. Now remember, this is his first church that he started in Europe, in, Greek, in a Greek area. And so Paul tells them he rejoiced in the Lord. And then he launches into this contentment business. Now you and I are inundated with a worldview. And we live in America, so we get an American worldview. And so whatever the news tells us, whatever our TVs tells us, we begin to start of adopt this worldview. And the more we spend reading and not critically thinking, the more we learn a worldview. Kind of like a fish cannot describe water, 
if it was asked. Describe water. Well, it's everything around me. It's everything that, it's, that, that exists. So our worldview matters. Have you ever wondered why advertising is so successful? Why you have so many commercials? I wish there was a way to get rid of commercials forever. I'm going to tell you right now, I do not like commercials. In fact, I refuse to watch TV shows that have a lot of commercials. I just don't. I don't like them because they try to give me a sense of discontent. Why is that? So let's say that you have the iPhone 12. I guess that's the newest one, maybe. I don't know. A new one comes out, and it has a point one five five point point something something better camera. Man, I really need that camera. I don't take any pictures on my phone, but I really need that. And what do they do? They spend their whole time making you discontent. They're saying, that little camera that you have, that's garbage. No one's going to like those bl blurry photos. Look at these cooler high-def photos. In fact, in 20 years, you're going to look back on these photos and say, why did I not invest in my family? Right? And they build this whole story to guilt you into feeling like this is not enough. And what does Paul say, though? He also has to deal with a worldview. And there's a Greek philosophical worldview that says mind over matter. If I don't mind, it doesn't matter. That's stoicism. Let me just shut down my emotions. I just won't get attached to anything. I don't want to feel sad so I don't make any friends. I don't want to have an awkward conversation so I don't go out. I don't want to be uncomfortable so I'm going to avoid it. And that's the Stoicism. Even um, philosophers like Sanka ad advocated for a self-dependence. And that word that he's using for contentment is the same word that these Greek philosophers use for independence or self-dependence. And, and Paul says here, there's a better option. And he begins to tell us what that option is. And I know you guys are at the edge of your seat to know what is this contentment. Well, the first thing we see is that it is learned. In verse 11, he says, I don't say this out of need. Now, that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? They just gave you a bunch of money. And he's like, I rejoiced in that, but I don't really need it. How would you feel if someone said, I don't really need that gift that you gave me? You kind of feel a little put down a little bit. But that's not what Paul's trying to say here. What Paul's trying to say is, I'm not trying to fleece the church. I'm not asking for your money because I need it for my personal good, but I'm using it for the mission of God. And he's saying, I don't have needs because I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. And the Philippians would know this about Paul because Paul was in jail in Philippi. In fact, they threw him in jail, and the jailer, one of the church members now here in Philippi, put him in the deepest, darkest hole, chained him up in an uncomfortable position, and he and his buddies started singing psalms and hymns. They started singing, I'd rather have Jesus. I don't know if that's what they really sang, but they sang songs of joy. In prison, chained up, uncomfortable. Could you do that? Could you say, could, if someone came in here and arrested you for being a Christian, took you down to Cochise Jail, and locked you up, put some handcuffs on you, made you uncomfortable, would you be able to sing songs of praise to Jesus in that circumstance? That'd be tough. So Paul's not a stranger to uncomfortable situations. He's not in an ivory tower. He's not sitting on a, on a cushy couch trying to write up some fancy story about what it means. 
Um, I saw a lot of jokes about the Antifa kids who type against capitalism on the iPhone or the MacBook that their dad gave them, um, and they, they're raging against capitalism from the comfort of capitalism. Paul is raging against discontentment from an uncomfortable position. Like, you can't get much more uncomfortable. And just to throw some more heat on the fire, he's likely to get beheaded soon. He's going to go before the ruler of the world in that time, Caesar, and he is going to be tried as a traitor to the country. Imagine. And he says, I'm, I'm comfortable, I'm content in whatever circumstance I find myself. And then in 12, he says, I know how to make do with little. And I know how to make do with a lot. Many of us will say, yeah, of course I can be content when I have a lot. Very few of us can say I can be content with a little. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret, and this is an important word that we'll come back to, of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. So the first thing we see about his contentment is that he's not needy. He doesn't need this extra stuff. He's not watching the ads on TV, making himself discontent, and saying, man, I really need that new type of laundry soap that'll make my clothes extra white. He is not needy. He's also not dependent on circumstances. Did you hear that? All circumstances. If you were put in a very bad circumstance, would you grumble a little bit maybe? If you're hungry, you ever heard of the the term hangry? You're hungry and angry at the same time? Are you... You have 23 minutes to get me some food before something bad happens. You ever heard that before? And, and Paul says, it doesn't matter. I could be hungry. I could be full. I could be well off or I could have nothing. I am content. And he's not talking about stoicism. Remember that. He's not saying what, what, what doesn't mind doesn't matter. It's mind over matter. He's not saying that. He's saying, I have something greater. There's something better that I have dependence in. And so he says he is content. He is satisfied. Jeremiah Burroughs offers a definition of Christian contentment. And I'll give you one that I wrote myself. It's in your bulletin. I've arrived as a pastor. I'm being quoted. So the Jeremiah Burroughs says, it is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So let me read that again because that was a little bit wordy as a Puritans are. It is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And Paul is living that out. The next thing we see is that, um, well, let's, let's just recap. He's not needy. He's not dependent on circumstances. And then in 12, he says this. He says, I know how to do a little, to make do with a little and a lot. And then he says, I have learned the secret. Did you catch that? It's learned. Contentment is learned. And if, it, if it's learned, you and I can get this. We don't have to be discontent or malcontents, which is a funner word to say. We can be content because it's learned It's experientially learned, though. That's the tough part. We learn by having bad circumstances or difficult circumstances happen. We become stronger if we trust in God 
through our negative circumstances. I like to call them unhappy providences. Things I don't appreciate happening to me. I don't like it when my tire gets a flat in my car. But can I say, in that trial, as small and trivial as it is, I will trust God in the circumstance. How many of you have spilt coffee all over your clothes and you wanted to say some not-so-nice things? Can you be content in that circumstance? I hope so. Contentment comes from Christ. Look at verse 13. Now this is what we like to put on our coffee mugs and our bumper stickers, but I don't think we really understand what it means. I am able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. I think a lot of Christian football players like to have this on their um, locker rooms. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Someone said, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. There's a context to this. There's a reason why Paul put it right here. So he said that you can learn contentment through the power of Christ in your difficult circumstances. Do you want contentment? Then you have to get the strength from Christ. This is very important to catch, guys, because in our pull yourself up by your bootstraps in our society, what do people say? Work harder. Do more work. Just white knuckle it. Jesus, take the wheel, but let me hold on. We want to maintain control. I'll use the gas and the brakes, right? And we want to hold on to this. But that's not what he's saying. He says, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me, through God. Some manuscripts say through Christ who strengthens me. In fact, Paul talks about contentment in other places. In Second or 1 Timothy 6, he talks about it. And I'll just read it to you so you guys don't have to turn there. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10 really talks about it. But eventually he gets down to verse 6. And in verse 6 he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Being holy, being more like Christ with contentment is great gain. It's credit. It's money in the bank. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. There is no... U-Haul on the back of a hearse. You can't take it with you. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, that's the key, craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you would be content, you rely on Christ. False teachers that Paul has warned us about already seek material gain. They want money. They want that big house on a hill. They want people to give them respect in the city streets and at the grocery store. If you see me at the grocery store, I'm probably not all dressed up. And I got some tattoos. We don't want to necessarily look or seek material gain for the purpose of gain. You don't need to wear um, fancy clothes. 
right? Expensive stuff, expensive watches. But these false teachers, what do they do? They're like false advertisement. They try to lead you to be discontent. They're like, you know what? You're not growing enough in your Christian life. So let me give you seven steps to a happy life. Your best life now. Paul would look at that book and laugh. Because guess where Paul is? In prison. But he's content. He doesn't need his best life now. Because he knows his best life's coming. And that's what we look for. And so contentment is really a protection for you from evil, from every kind of evil. If you're discontented in your life, you are prone to want to do your own thing and not trust in God. So let me give you my definition. It's in your bulletin because I told Ryan to put it there so that I could be famous. And it says this, Christian contentment is the active, intentional inner delight and rest in God's wise and good fatherly providence in every circumstance. Say that five times fast. But the question that you should ask yourself, are you delighting in God in every circumstance? That's the question. Are you delighting in God in every circumstance? Is he the pearl of great price? Are you like that man who found a treasure in the field left it, sold everything he had, and bought the field so that he could possess that treasure. That's the parable of Christ, the great treasure. Is Christ your greatest treasure? Because if he isn't, I don't think you're a Christian. I don't think you've been regenerated. I don't think your heart has changed from the things of this world. Now it's possible that you were a Christian for a while and you lapsed. I was going to make a joke, but it would go over my head, so I'm not going to say it. But you could have lapsed. You could have turned away from the things of the Lord and pursued money and all kinds of evil. Not that money is evil, but craving money is. Or you may be just wanting to come to church on Sunday and then leave and do your own thing. That's not a Christian, friends. That's not someone who is swallowed up in the will of another. And that's something we have to be aware of because there's so much more contentment in the one who follows in God's steps, in the steps of Christ. Christians, of course, will struggle with contentment. This concept is difficult. It's a challenge because we have to learn it. It's not something that we get. You don't get, when you become a Christian, you don't get a little coat that says Christian on it and then a contentment chip, right? You don't. You have to learn this. And so, Let's learn it. It's learned, and there's a way to attain it. But it's hard. It's experiential. When things go bad, you have to actively turn to God. And we saw that last week when we talked about anxiety, didn't we? We said it's not enough just to say, I'm not going to worry anymore. But I actually have to replace that worry with something else. And he says, think on these things. Whatever is true whatever is good, whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure. We saw that last week. Think about these things, dwell on these things, and then do these things. So if you would get rid of discontentment, it's not enough to just say, I'm not going to be discontent. I'm going to be happy about everything. It's not enough to do that. It's an act of turning in faith to Christ. You want to use every lawful means 
to get rid of your discontent. If something bad happens, let's say you lose your job, you don't just go sit on your couch and mope about it, right, and say, well, I'm just going to wait for God to make something happen for me. No, you get up, you pray, you turn your anxiety over to him, and you go look for a job. And you trust that he will work out what's already been worked in you from earlier in Philippians. So Christian contentment means you don't murmur against God, but you do cry out to God. When things are hard, you turn your heart over to him. You don't allow yourself to be overwhelmed. You cast all your cares on him. It's heart work. It's hard work and it's heart work. You have to place your heart on Christ actively. In 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul says we boast in our weakness. Do you boast in your weakness? A lot of us don't like to boast in our weakness. In fact, as a man, we don't like anyone to think we don't know something. That's why we don't ask for directions when we get lost in a new city. Because we don't want to be weak. But often, we are. And in fact, that's a good thing. Christian contentment comes from and connects to the second trait, generosity. Christian generosity is a source of encouragement. In verse 15, he says, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, and now he gives us a summary of what it was like in the early days of the gospel in, in this Greek land. Nobody was really helping support him. He had to rely on the people here in Philippi that sent him money, even when he was working and serving and teaching these people the gospel, and he wasn't making any money in the process and being able to provide for himself. And so he's thanking them for their generosity. They have a history of partnership, and he even references their Roman name by calling you Philippians in 15. He says, you Philippians know. And so he's showing them respect. He's like, these men and women have been generous. You guys have really done a lot with your money. It's a type of partnership. Your money goes where you cannot. And that's why we're big on missions here at Sierra Vista Baptist Church. Our money goes where we can't. We can't go and tutor kids in Vanuatu. We cannot go up to um, Phoenix and deal with college kids all day long. We cannot go to all these nations ourselves, but we can help other people get there. And so our generosity is really a profit for the giver. And look at 17. It says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. When you are a generous giver, and this doesn't just mean money, but in this context, Paul is talking about money. He says, your gift that you gave to me that I don't need personally is going to really help you in your account. So he's saying that this generosity is sort of an investment in the future, an investment in the joy of gospel ministry. And so he's saying generosity, the Christian generosity, is a form of worship. Look at verse 18. He says, But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. When you give generously, you are doing an act of worship. This is a form of worship. It's saying, God, I trust you even when my money's tight. God, I trust you 
for this. Your giving pays spiritual dividends, and it comes with a promise. In 19, he says, And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So he's not saying that if you sow a seed of money, then you're going to get so much back. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying if you um, give money, you're going to get money, right? You've got to pay to make money. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is this is a spiritual investment. Now, God will take care of you, and you may end up in a prison cell in the bottom of a dungeon in Rome, but your treasure's in heaven, and it's imperishable, as Second Peter talks about. It's not a material promise. And then he goes into praise in verse 20. He says, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So many of you could not run an orphanage. Many of you cannot adopt children. But you could be financially supportive of what someone like George Mueller was doing with his money. Now I love what George Mueller says about money. Listen to this. Money is really worth no more than as it can be used to accomplish the Lord's work. Life is worth as much as it is spent for the Lord's service. Or here's another quote. Have you ever considered that the very reason your earnings remain so small may be because you spend everything on yourself? If God gave you more, you would only use it to increase your own comfort instead of looking to see who is sick or who has no work at all, that you might help them. That's a powerful statement. And I think we should consider that today. Have you considered that the very reason your earnings remain so small may be because you spend everything on yourself to increase your own comfort? If God gave you more, you would only use it to increase your own comfort to buy that new iPhone with the extra cool camera that looks like a spider and scares everybody. You would only use it to increase your own comfort instead of looking to see who is sick or who has no work at all that you might help them. That's some deep stuff for us to consider, especially as wealthy Americans. Americans are some of the wealthiest people on the planet. Now, we may not feel that way compared to some of our neighbors, but I can tell you, we are wealthy, and not just in money, but in stuff. And in fact, I think that's why we are so malcontent in a lot of ways. So do I really need to say more about this than what has already been said? I want you to ask yourself if you are a generous person, and have you found joy in being able to give? I heard someone say, I wish I was rich so that I could do all these things. They want to um, help out someone's GoFundMe. They want to uh, give an extra big tip at a, you know, for, for such and such. But the question is, why aren't you doing that now? Because you're just spending it on yourself. Christian goodbyes. No one likes to say goodbye, but in verse 21, it says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. So he reminds them once again, you all are wholly set apart for God. Christians are saints. There's not a special class of Christian. He's personally and relationally warm with them. He calls them all God's people. He calls them God's people. Just like he began the letter, he's ending it. And he's not talking about their behavior because some of them were not acting very saintly, were they? 
Some of them were not acting very holy. They were actually fighting in the church. He said, but your position is as a saint. So union with Christ is the only basis for being set apart. Our only hope is that we are in Christ, knowing and being known by Jesus. 22 is interesting from a historical perspective because he says all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now I want to tell you something about Paul. Paul is a difficult man because you say, Paul, we are going to throw you in prison. And Paul says, great, I'm going to convert your household. You say, Paul, we are going to execute you. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. They're like, no, we're going to make you live. To live is Christ. You can't do nothing with Paul. If you were a Roman ruler, what would you do with this guy? So you put him in prison, and he starts converting your administrators and everybody in your household, in the government. So the government gets converted. This is fascinating stuff, honestly. Paul goes to prison and starts changing the world. How many of us can be said can say that of where we're put? How many of you have had to move to less comfortable housing and thought, oh, what a miserable place I have to be in? Instead of saying, I bet there's some people here that need to know about Jesus. How exciting would that be? Some of you are like, I cannot believe that the army sent me to Sierra Vista. What a crazy place this is. Instead of saying, I could share the gospel. People here need Jesus. People here are suffering. Think about that. Consider it. Christian converts from Caesar's own household. No wonder Nero was so angry and burnt Christians alive. What do you guys think about this book in Philippians? Let's get some feedback. It's a pretty interesting book, isn't it? Pretty powerful, even. It really is convicting to me on a personal level about joy, about anxiety, about contentment. So it would be a big shame if you guys forgot everything by the time we go and open up our potluck meal. It would be a real shame if we closed this book and did not remember a thing about it. So I would like to encourage you, this month, take some time, reread Philippians. Spend some time thinking about, could I have that life that Paul has? Maybe not the prison stuff, right? But maybe I could be content in every circumstance. Maybe I should have no anxiety or worry if I know that God is in control and begin to question these things in your heart. As we conclude today, your challenge then is to spend some time in Philippians this week and then take something actionable from Philippians. Do something with it. That could be you share it with your barber, make it real awkward. I'm going to tell you something about my barber. I don't know what it is, but he thinks he's a prophet. So we've had conversations like that. And then he forgets that I'm a pastor sometimes. And the next thing you know, he's talking about all the girls that he's been dating and doing stuff with. And then the next week he realizes that I'm a pastor again. And we start talking about uh, stuff that he did in Australia. Like It's just such a bizarre conversation. So I'm not afraid of sharing some gospel news to this guy because he's made it real awkward for me. So I'm going to make it super awkward for him. And he's a captive audience. So do something with Philippians. Share something about Philippians with those around you. Don't let this die here today. Okay? Sound like a plan? Yes? Thumbs up? Everybody say good? All right. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. And I want to pray for our food.
And then we're going to sing a song. And then Gary's going to tell you that you need to help move the chairs forward and put the tables together and do all this fun stuff. And I really want you all to come and eat with us because this is a great way for us to know you and you to know us. And we can get more personal instead of just sitting far away from each other in these chairs. Okay? Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you speak through Paul. Lord, what a gracious gift the book of Philippians is. Lord, we thank you for the circumstances that led to the writing of Philippians. Even though it was a time of struggle and difficulty and trial for both Paul and for those in Philippi, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen this body of believers, this family that I so dearly love, that you would strengthen them in the book of Philippians, that they would read through it this month and they would put into practice what we have read so far. Father God, bring this to remembrance when they begin to get worried this week. Bring it to remembrance when they start to grumble in, in, in their malcontentness. And don't let them sleep until they turn to your word. Father God, I pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, who so graciously gives us more than we deserve. All these things. And also, Lord, I want to thank you for the food. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.